following program is brought to you in living color on WTDR. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a ride. I am the narrator. The voice that guides the blind. Following up with your ears, but your mind. And allow me to take you back on four feet time. To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now. But won't. Further down the line. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that explores the great mysteries, challenges, and opportunities we encounter on the human evolutionary journey. This morning, my guest is Akim Novak, author of The Moment, a practical guide to creating a mindful life in a distracted world, which focuses on four basic key strategies to achieve a more mindfully engaged life. Good morning, Akim, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Good morning, Tonio. I'm happy to be with you. I'm really delighted to have you. You used to be a theater director, and you've worked as an acting coach. And I'm, yes. I'm very curious about the relationship between acting and being present in the moment. One thing that actors do is pretty much every actor, the moment they go to acting school or take an acting class, the acting teacher will work with them on strengthening their ability to experience the five senses. And there are lots of exercises we do around how to really, really see and notice what's around us, how to really taste food, how to really smell things, how to really experience texture. And it feels like such a no-brainer because... Actors are paid to be fully alive in the moment. That's what they do for a living. And the senses are, for me, a great way to start and also a pleasurable way to get out of our minds and out of our heads into present reality, which tends to be the physical space in which we're in. So that's a great place to start, and that's where actors begin an acting class. You're an admirer of theater director Peter Brook, who wrote... Yes. I am. He wrote a book called The Empty Space, 
And in it, he says, we don't need props to create great right. theater. All we need are actors and an empty space. You then write, in the performance of our everyday lives, you and I are the actors. Every moment is empty space. Nothing happens in this space, and everything does. It is that simple. We decide. What do you mean by that? Nothing happens, everything happens, we decide. Well, if, if we take the language of theater or movies, then our life is a story that is written every second, every day, as we live. Just like you and I in the moment are creating a story and we don't know where it's going, but moment by moment we're making decisions about what we're talking about. And I start the book with a story that I have a good friend in Los Angeles, Irene, and Irene is a well-known writing teacher in Los Angeles, and she told me the story in the kitchen of her apartment in Santa Monica, and this story had prompted me to write the book, and it's very much about the question you asked. Irene said, I walked into a bookstore to Hudson Booksellers at LAX Terminal 3, and I was buying the New York Times, and I sensed a man standing next to me. And I looked up, and there he was, and there was a simmering silence between us, and we saw each other's eyes. And I paid for my New York Times, and then the man asked me, do you want to grab a cup of coffee? And just then, an announcement came over the loudspeaker announcing that my flight was boarding. And Irene said, I paid very quickly told the man that this is my flight and I ran off and I blurted out to the attendant who was taking my ticket I just met the most wonderful man and the attendant said well you have to go back and find him and Irene ran back to the bookstore and the man was gone and you could think of this as a sad story but the truth is that was a moment and in my mind moments are waiting to be born all the time the beauty for me in Irene's story is that she noticed the moment she didn't have the courage to act on it. But that's the spirit in which I, I invite us to look at life. Moments, rich moments, moments of possibility all around us. But it begins with us noticing what's going on around us. And in Irene's case, the reaction, the hunch, you know, that little piece of insight she had inside. I'm sure that all of us have experienced moments like that. I have lots yes. of memories growing up in New York City, occasionally encountering people from a distance and making this kind of essential eye contact yeah. that's rich with this meaning of connection and yet not necessarily feeling compelled in any way to do anything further, that that moment in itself being enough. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we all have stories where those moments blossomed into very powerful and deep relationships. I so know what you're talking about. There's a psychologist named Dr. Barbara Fredrickson whose work I love. She wrote a book called Love 2.0 and she coined the term micro moments of love and I I, I really play with that a little bit in my book and, and the very simple principle is in that fleeting moment because not everything has to become a lifelong friendship. That's not the point. We don't have time for that many friends, right? But even if I know that we're just passing each other for a minute or two, by noticing that person, by taking the risk to say something inviting and receiving the energy back, we create what Fredrickson calls 
and I play with this intentionally in my life, a micro moment of love and the energy of that moment, because we took that risk, that feel-good energy tends to carry me through my day, and it colors many other moments. You know, and, and even though I know I will probably never see that person again, and that's okay. That person has actually deeply entered our lives on a very meaningful level. And on an energetic level or on a soul level, depending on what language you use. Hmm. And in that, in that moment, I don't feel alone. I don't feel separate. I feel connected to a larger force. And that's, it's an exquisite reminder of what's true anyway, but we need to allow for those moments to happen. Hmm. And I love the way you bring the language of energy into this because energy is something that we don't talk about yeah. in our culture. We don't, and it's funny, I, I own an international training and executive coaching firm called Influence. So we work with big Fortune 500 companies and we work with senior executives to help them look at how they put do better show up in the world. And, and, and we do some pretty deep work with them but every one of them has taken lots of psychological assessments and the traditional, and I believe in psychology. You know, I, I've seen therapists for years and benefited from those relationships. But the language in a lot of traditional psychological assessments is still that you're either an introvert or you're an extrovert and you get energy from your thoughts, you get energy from other people. And there's so many richer ways of understanding energy. The moment we talk about prana or chi or kundalini, you know, the kind of big energy that all non-Western cultures know really well and talk about and have practices for. Mm. And you talk about <laughs> some very powerful things like Shakti and Shaktipat, which yeah. Yeah. both of us have direct experiences with, but is, is very rare for people in our culture to experience, let alone be even aware of what they are? Well, I, I call it big energy, and, and for every listener who's had the experience, I don't need to explain to you what it is, and if you haven't had the experience of big energy, you know, different cultures have a language for it. The American term is life force, but in its Shakti is, is an Indian term for big energy, and there, there's specific practices for accessing it. The best-known ones in, in the United States are the chakras, which are seven energy centers that are along the spine. And you can read a lot about the chakras, and there's, there are ways of beginning to open the chakras. And once we open the chakras, we have a much deeper, richer, concrete experience of energy flowing through us. And in, in, in the spirit of creating richer moments in our lives, when, when my energy flows more strongly, I am more open to receive the energy from other people, and I'm also sending more energy toward others. So the moments and the encounters with others become just sweeter. It, it, it's an intangible way. It's not the what, big, rah-rah, extroverted energy. It's sweet, but it's very tangible, and to me, that's where the richness of life is. Very early in my life, I trained in Chinese energy healing, and I learned awesome. to distinguish on very subtle levels, the qualities of energy. But I was too young to really appreciate the deep implications of that that were possible for me. So it wasn't until almost 10 years ago that I really discovered a very powerful practice of our innate ability to receive and project energy in a conscious, intentional way. 
Can you describe that energy for me, uh, that practice? Well, first you have to become aware of the sensation of energy in your body. Yeah. And yeah. you talk about as reading energy cues. Yeah. And as you say, I, I, I loved your description of big energy as life force because I think that's probably the, the, the simplest way for Westerners to understand what we're talking about. Yeah. And when we can feel that life force within us actually moving and coursing through our bodies because it's not energy is not a static thing and we tend to label things and try and pigeonhole things in very clear ways and energy is a very fluid thing that's what makes it energy yes and, and yeah i love the way you described it and i was just thinking if if this still sounds abstract to somebody, I, I love acupuncture, you know, which is a practice of releasing energy streams through the body by uh, somebody placing needles on you. And we tend to just use acupuncture in, in our culture if to treat some medical condition. But if you have a good acupuncturist near you, an acupuncturist can just help balance your energy. He or she can help release energy. And for me, and I've had lots of acupuncture, when I'm done with an acupuncture session, I have a tangible experience of energy racing through my body. It's, it's profound and it's powerful and it changes the way I experience the rest of the day and the week. I've never experienced that with acupuncture, but I've definitely experienced that with rebirthing and things like that, which I did a lot of way back in the wow. day. Up here in Vermont, there's not much of that going on here, although there are acupuncturists, and I'm actually going to have an acupuncturist on my show in the next month or two. We just had a wonderful conversation leading up to that. This thing about energy, though, how do you educate people on how to cultivate this sense of energy? For me, it took me decades before I, I reached a level where I could really appreciate it and deeply comprehend the power of it in my own being see that's what it is it's like the comprehension yeah. of the power of it and what we can well, I, my, what we know, can do with my, it intentionally well as you so beautifully said is the, the more we play with energy the deeper our experience of it becomes but a, a good practice for anybody to do is I, I really advocate for doing like regular I call it energy check-ins and the most traditional way that we break down energy is and this is a, a Western way of breaking it down is that, that there are four parts to it. You know, that we have mental energy, we have emotional energy, physical energy, and spiritual energy. And, and those are four different energy streams. Like you and I are exchanging ideas right now through our language. So that's mental energy that we're exchanging. But because both you and I have already referenced experiences from our past, and you've been very eloquent about it, that's part of the emotional energy that comes with the mental energy. Physical energy obviously has to do with how energized our body is in the day. And spiritual energy is, is a connection to, I think, like a deeper source, and then we can learn how to sense that or the, the kind of connectedness to everything, the sacredness of a space. And the more we get in, in, in the habit of tuning in and just stopping for a moment saying is, what, am, what is my mental energy right now? What's my physical energy? Uh, what's my emotional energy? And as you said, energy is fluid, it can change. 
But if we feel like we're stuck, we can take actions to change the stuckness in very mundane ways. The way I relate this in my book, this became very clear to me as I was writing it. And in my experience, when it comes to energy, there, there are two different types of people. And I'm talking about external energy that comes in us. And internal energy comes in the spirit of a, a somebody gives us a suggestion, an idea, a thought, a provocation. Um, somebody gives us a hug. You know, that's a form of physical energy coming at us. And there are folks who say, well, let me pause and think about it. And I'm a great believer in the power of reflection. But there are folks who, when energy comes toward them, are willing to embrace it and go for the ride. And I use the term wave riding energy in the book. And sometimes when we go on the ride with some energy, which becomes a new opportunity, it doesn't always end up nicely but because we take a risk. But folks who, are, who know how to wave ride energy tend to have the more uh, adventurous lives and the more satisfying lives because they're willing to take the risk. So I, I'm a strong advocate for taking that risk. And when energy comes toward us, be willing to explore and investigate. And if it doesn't feel right, we can always get off the wave. Or change course. It's like an improvisational yes. dance. <laughs> yes, I, I love the way you said that. Totally, yeah. That's something that I have personal experience with, contact improvisational dance. Mm. And you learn a vocabulary. Training is learning uh-huh. a new vocabularies of movement, new possibilities of movement, new ways of responding to the other, to, to people we're in contact with which makes it a very unifying, creative dance between people. And I, I know a little bit about contact improvisation, so what I, I like about it, because we often think that improvisation means just people sort of respond to stimuli in the moment, but what happens, I think, in contact improvisation and all great improvisation is we make choices in the moment, but we, we, we return to most motifs we return to themes, we discover deeper meaning, and we create a narrative together, and the narrative is revealed as we, as we make it up and as we pay attention to external and internal stimuli. And to me, that's a wonderful for analogy for writing the wave, you know, because that's what we do. Exactly. And you talk about awakening the senses, and I think mm-hmm. that that's a key part of learning how to engage with, recognize, and read those energy cues. Because the improvisation is, is a reading of the energy cues between people and then being able to respond to them in new creative ways. Beautifully said. I, I, I have nothing, nothing to add to what you said. And part of my purpose for writing this book is hopefully, as we're hearing the idea of starting with the five senses, you know, the, the pressures to work harder, to do more, to push, 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 are so big in, in our culture. And we tend to transmit that to our children. And, and my book is really about uh, returning to a more childlike enjoyment of the world. And the senses are just one of the aspects, but it's a powerful way of beginning. And the connection you made, which I really loved, is the senses also connect us to an awareness of our intuition and paying attention to how we react to things inside. 
And one of the things that tends to get in the way of that, you call the frontal lobe of the brain a high security cabin, <laughs> a, a thought a thought bunker that yeah. actually ignores most of what is actually happening. Now, I'm referring to the mind chatter, you know, which is we get we get so locked into our stories about things and it's hard to not have stories, but we think the stories are reality, and the stories are just the stories. I, I spent so, uh, many years ago. I spent some, a decade leading a lot of personal transformation work, and and one example we we used all the time in those workshops, and I tell it in the book because it's so concrete for me, is you know, just imagine that you're looking at a chair, and you know, I'm looking at a chair in my office right now. It's it's a leather chair. It has brown. Uh, wood arms. It has a certain uh, mustardy type leather. I can describe the shape for you, and that's the chair. But the stuff in the brain is: I like the chair. I don't like the chair. This chair is ugly. I love this chair. Why did I buy this chair? You know who the heck put this chair here? Like all that chatter about the chair, and we think that's our experience of the chair, and it has nothing to do with the chair. You know. And the reason why I love meditation and other practices is because those are ways of tuning down the chatter just a little bit. So when we look at the chair, we go, okay, it's just a chair. And I have a choice. I can like it or not like it. But all the other chatter is probably taking up unnecessary space in the brain, you know. Mm. I love when you say, beware the stories you tell yourself. They are mm -hmm. the meaning you will find and then you write, our beliefs are embedded in our stories about the world. Each story, yeah. each story informs the prajna that shows up for us. And each story yeah. in one fell swoop tempts us to ignore evidence that doesn't fit it. Yeah. So this gets into, you talk a lot about meaning and prajna. This is yeah. probably a good place for you to talk about what they are and to differentiate and and where they fit into all of this yes life tends to be sweeter when we're engaged in an activity and and it has a special meaning for us but because this book is called the moment i i'm less concerned with writing about the big life meaning even though that's important uh i really want to pay attention to the, the kind of meaning that we discover in the moment as the moment unfolds and to give you like a specific example that we've all experienced. You know, we've all had moments where we meet um, somebody for the first time, let's say at a social function or at a party, and we get into a great conversation with the person that we've just met, and at some point the little voice says, wow, this will be a friend for life. And that little voice that says, this will be a friend for life, that's what uh, the Buddhist term prajna wisdom refers to, which is that that insight that finds meaning in the moment of a simple conversation. And the beauty is when that voice kicks in and says, this will be a friend for life, it, it enriches my experience of that conversation even more. You know, so I, I am interested in us, and, and Prajna talks to us in different ways. Sometimes it's a voice, sometimes it's a sense of peace and calm in the body where, where it lets us know that this is, the right place, the right moment, the right person. It could be we hear a song, and this lyric of a song is the message that clarifies the meaning of a moment. So it behooves us to learn how prajna talks to us. 
But once we discover it and pay more attention to it, suddenly it shows up everywhere, and it tends to sweeten our experience of moments. And that's really the focus of the book, which is how do we, how do we discover how to live moments more richly as they unfold. So how do we do that? Well, you know, I talk about four different keys, and we've touched on them already, but when it comes to prajna, which is discovering meaning in the moment, I would invite all the listeners to explore how that wisdom talks to you. The most common one is the little voice that says something. But it's, it's another just acuity, if you will. And once we, we pay attention to it, it tends to happen more often, and it tends to just sweeten our experience of moments. So just, number one, it, Accept the fact that this sort of wisdom exists. It's there. It wants to talk to us. It wants to talk to everybody, regardless of your personality. Notice how it talks to you. And then as you're, as you're engaging with somebody in the moment, pay attention to those signals because they're rich information about the meaning of a moment and they tend to generally sweeten it for us. They can also, on the opposite end, the voice can be as, let me get the heck out of here. Like, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And that's important, too. We've all had those moments when we're in either in the wrong place or with the wrong person in the wrong relationship. And many of us have had those moments of prajna, and we ignore it. Uh-huh. It behooves us to pay attention. Sounds like prajna is like a peak of intuition. Yes. And I, I love the word peak that you put in there. I prefer, the, the Buddhist term means wisdom, and I prefer wisdom to intuition, because wisdom to me is almost deeper. Uh, I love intuition, but intuition sometimes get mis, gets misconstrued as like a little flash or a passing whim, and wisdom is a deep knowing. Mm-hmm. Like, this, when I talk about meeting somebody for the first time, and you, there's that moment where you say, this will be a friend for life, and really knowing that in that moment, is powerful, and, and because when I when I know that in the moment, it means I, I will be willing to take the follow up actions to make sure that happens. Does that make sense? So it's not just a passing whimsy, and then yeah, I'll never talk to the person again. Yes, those are critical distinctions, and your example of prajna, a voice during a deep conversation, saying, "Oh, this is going to be a friend for life." Is that what you also call double tracking in the book? Yeah, it, it's related. Double tracking in, in spiritual worlds is often called being the witness. I use the term double tracking. Is when we are in the middle of an experience in a moment, and then we have a different level of awareness or insight about it. And to just, if, we, if I want to be very mundane, I tell the story about dancing and being on the dance floor and having a good time. And then at some point, a voice kicks in and says, wow, I'm having a great time right now. And I'm going to have a great time whether that voice speaks to me or not, but that voice means I am conscious of my experience of the moment, and a part of me says, wow, I, I am aware of the fact that I'm having a great time. That's the double tracking that, that really deepens the experience of the moment. If I relate this to more complicated situations, let's say I'm in a business meeting, and I'm saying something, and the moment I say it, that could be the voice that says, why the heck did I say that right now? And maybe I said something that was offensive to people, I say people's reactions. So that double tracking is a way of staying aware of my behaviors, and if the behavior is not helpful in the situation, I can also adjust my behavior. 
you know, that's it's a classic personal self-awareness, but that, that ability to be in the moment and track my behavior response at the same time allows me to, if I need to change, create a better next moment. Mm. And that's part of being a more mature grown-up mm. and not always easy to do. So Yes, to be honestly witnessing ourselves and, yes. and ex- being able to experience it as a learning moment. Yes, mm. in, in the moment, yeah. Um, how do you distinguish between this double tracking and or prajna and mind chatter? Because sometimes it's um, hard to distinguish. Yeah. Mind chatter drones on and on and on. Tracking is a silent, observant way of being in the moment, but also paying attention to the impact I'm having on others in the world and how I'm receiving the world. It's a more silent, more passive witnessing. The chatter is just constant. And uh, Prajna wisdom tends to be a deep, clear moment of insight that is much bigger than any chatter. When I track myself, it can lead to moments of Prajna, but Prajna is usually this wonderful surprise that I'm not consciously working for. It's a moment of grace that comes to me and that clarifies a lot of things. Mm, I like that. The mind chatter is very familiar. It's the, the running of the same old chatter and mm-hmm. same old stories, whereas Prajna is a fresh new insight. Yes. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about stories and being aware of stories that they get you into trouble most of the time. When you choose them well, they steer you into moments of sheer delight. And you, you tell a story in the book where yes. you're, you're at a toll booth in yes. Florida. Would you like to yes. tell that story? I, I love that, and I'll tell you the story in a moment. But Barbara Fredrickson wrote this book on Love 2.0 that I believe I already referred to. Mm-hmm. And I just remember I had visited a friend in Naples, Florida, which is on the west coast of Florida. I live just north of Miami, so I had to cross, you know, Alligator Alley and the Everglades, and there's a toll booth, and I drive up to the toll booth, and, you know, I know I have to pay my $3. And there's a woman who, the woman of a certain age, and I remember she just had these unusually big sunglasses, and she was just emitting positive energy. And I've made, the choice that I've made, my part in it is, with folks like these, is I, I choose to engage rather than disengage. That's a conscious choice I make. So I jokingly said to her, you look like an Italian movie star. And that was prompted by those glasses. And she just laughed, and she said, oh, don't I wish? And I could tell she enjoyed the comment. And then I said, well, maybe you are. Maybe you're researching your next great role here. And then she giggled some more, and I drove off. And it was such a sweet moment. And I happened to have been on the phone with a colleague who overheard this, and my colleague said, boy, you just made her day. And my thought about that was I wasn't trying to make her day, but this encounter was not an accident. You know, I, I intentionally choose to engage with strangers when they send me positive energy. And I believe in the power of a micro moment of love. And that's what this was. Micro moments of love is we, we exchange positivity with another person. And this was a classic moment. It was quick. It lasted maybe 20, 30 seconds. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. It was clearly over when I drove off. But I know that I felt better for the rest of the day because of that exchange. And I'm pretty confident that my stranger at the toll booth felt better as well. Mm-hmm. That was the beauty of that moment for me. 
uh-huh. a little dance of love and joy. Yes. <laughs> I love those <laughs> things. I had Barbara Fredrickson on the show a couple of years ago, and I'm actually going to play nice. a couple of short clips from that after, after our interview. Cause, Wonderful. Because I love her work. And I do too, yes. Because most people think of love in terms of romantic ideals or family mm-hmm. bonds, but there's really a lot more to love, and the English language really um, has only one term that it, that it uses to cover so much. I'll just tell you another story related to this, because I really toy with the notion of micro moments of love, and and one practice I have developed for myself, you know, I travel a lot for business to work with clients, so sometimes I'm I'm on a plane late in the evening flying home to Florida, and I'm usually tired, but I decided that even when I'm tired, if there's a person near me who's emitting positive energy, let me engage with this person. And I was sitting on a flight from Chicago to Miami, and across from me, you know, they have these plop-down seats for flight attendants who are sort of deadheading back. There was a flight attendant, an, an older female who had just come back from Shanghai, and she was trying to make it back to Miami. And I could tell she was completely exhausted, and I was exhausted. But there was a, a beautiful energy to her smile and spirit. And as tired as I was, I, I, I decided, let me engage with her. And we just got into this little conversation about travel and life. But in the conversation, I really felt like I sort of, on a soul level, connected to this woman. And at the end, she just said, you know, thank you so much for this conversation. And I said, thank you. And I was uplifted by the chat that we had. And that was another micro moment of love. And it was an intentional choice. And those are the choices we can make all the time. Mm. I love that you bring that up because... That is such an incredibly rich potential of our lives that we can, we really can do this in every moment, in every chance encounter that we have. And the, the connection I, I, I want to emphasize, since we spoke about energy, the energy of that encounter that's positive, that moment we created, carries over way beyond that moment. So by indulging in that one sweet moment, energetically we're inviting other sweet moments into our life and that's the beauty because that's the energy we have activated right although some people have a lot of difficulty with this concept because a lot of people have had very painful experiences in their lives that Mm -hmm. they are unable to reconcile and you tell you tell the story of Viktor Frankl which I think is a really beautiful story to tell right now well, Victor Frankl, you know, was, was, it wrote a deservedly famous book called In Search of Meaning right after he came out of a concentration camp in World War II. And he'd been, a, I believe, a psychologist in Vienna, and most of his family perished. And the excerpt that really struck me, he talks about, like, one harrowing night when he and a bunch of fellow prisoners were herded through a trail in the dark. And it was, more like, one of those, you know classic dark nights of the soul. And in that moment, he he said, I remembered why poets talk about the power of love. And I remembered my wife. And I remember how, in the end, that is what really matters. We can argue a lot about what universal meaning is, because all universal meaning can ultimately be just another story. But I happen to believe that love is the ultimate meaning. And he said that among his colleagues in the concentration camps, 
the ones who held the possibility of a positive outcome, even in the middle of uh, harrowing circumstances, tended to fare a lot better. Those are the people who have this resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that made me think of the old yin-yang symbol, where in the heart of the darkness emerges this point of light, which then grows, and then it goes through this cycle of light and dark, that there is no endlessly dark tunnel that some people are so afraid of. I really appreciate the way you said that, Tonio, because one thing that so concerns me is sometimes that in the metaphysical and spiritual world, and especially in the world of positive thinking, there are lots of messages about not thinking dark thoughts, not going to that place. And we artificially prevent ourselves from moving through those spaces to get to an even more beautiful place of light. You know, so the shadow play that you describe is an innate and profound part of the life journey. And it's, as you said, it's all energy that we move through. And when we block it, we actually stay energetically stuck. There's somebody who's well-known in the energy world, Dr. Barbara Brennan, who is one of the best-known energy healers, energy teachers. She's a school in Miami. And she writes very compellingly about if we are physically blocked and stuck energetically because at some point we're continuously protecting ourselves, and that happens with body armor, because we keep carrying the old pain, you know, we, we prevent beautiful new moments from happening. And part of our personal homework and personal responsibility is to, with the help of a professional, and you talked about rebirthing that many ways of doing it, is to release these body blocks and release the pain so more light can enter our lives. And that's our responsibility to do that homework. You know, when you write a book like this, at some point you start talking to people about it and you never know how people are going to react. So the first time I I was invited to speak about this book was the end of last November. The book wasn't even out yet to a group of, uh, of women who are serious meditators here in, in, in Miami. And it was a lovely group of people. And there was a woman who I, I inspired me in many ways. She was 81. She was very peppy. She was a yoga teacher. She still teaches yoga and trains people. And she says, I'm positive, and I'm a positive thinker, and I'm positive all the time. And her name was Gloria. And I said, I think, Gloria, that's wonderful, but I have to be honest with you. This was three days after the Paris attacks, you know, where over 100 people were killed. I said to her, Friday evening, I turned on the television, and I, I watched what was going on in Paris, and I allowed myself to watch for a while. And I felt sad. And, I, you know, if I continue to feel sad for three days in a row... That might not be helpful, but it was okay to feel sad and have an emotional response that's not happy when people are being killed in Paris, you know, and, you know, that's the light and the shadow that we're talking about and creating space for both because we're human, you know. Mm. And you talk about the importance of exploring things that are foreign to us, and I think that ties directly into this. I had a conversation with with a psychologist from New York, Blair Glazer, who I really very much like. And, and Blair and I were talking about the, the power of aha moments which shift our lives. And for many of us, aha moments, we think of it as almost like a lucky accident. Something happens where we have an insight and we make a different decision about how to proceed. And I said to Blair, there has to be a way to 
to make choices that invite more aha moments where we are able to have more of those insights because they tend to be so provocative. And, and as I was writing it, I was reading a piece in the Wall Street Journal. And it was a story about Scott Neeson, who had been the head of Sony Pictures. And Scott Neeson had flown to Cambodia. He was interested in welfare issues for children. And an 86-year-old woman took Scott Neeson to actually a trash heap where there were three young children seriously ill with typhoid. And in the moment, as he's approaching these seriously, gravely ill children, his phone rings, and there's an actor on the phone from Hollywood, an A-list actor who Neeson worked with, and the actor yells at Neeson on the phone, complains that he doesn't have the right amenities on his private jet, and he says, my life wasn't meant to be this hard. And in that moment, you know, Neeson had a classic aha moment. The next day he quit his job at Sony Pictures and committed himself full-time to be the head of the children's fund that helps children in Cambodia. But that aha happened because the reality of the physical moment could no longer be reconciled with the other reality, which is the phone call of his life in Los Angeles. And he, the two of them didn't make sense anymore, and the tension was too big. I love that story. I, I love that story. It really touched me. But then what, what I play with is we don't have to fly to Cambodia to have those insights. You know, if we're willing to explore whatever is foreign for us in our own world, in our own neighborhood, we're able to create a similar kind of tension that creates the aha moments. For example, if you go to a specific kind of church that you love very much, go to a completely different church where you don't know anybody and just show up for the experience. Or um, if you have a certain kind of hobby, Go to a meetup group with a bunch of people who have a totally different hobby that they're passionate about and just hang out and experience that. And we can go down the list of very specific things we can do right where we live that walk us into the forum. And then we pay attention to our reaction and what happens. And it's, it can be very powerful and illuminating. I spent a year living in Spain when I was a child, and I think it was probably one of the most profound, contrasting experiences I could have had. We lived in a small, very poor town in southern Spain, and it was such a dramatic contrast to the whole American ideal that we're surrounded by regardless of whether we're wealthy or poor. And do you have a sense of, like, one or two things that really were crystallized for you in that experience, besides the difference in money and wealth? Well, I came back with a completely different perspective of the world. All the people there had nothing, and yet they, gave, they shared everything with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas in this country, it's usually the exact opposite. Yeah. And I grew up in New York City, which is... Probably <laughs> the peak of of that that experience in this country of yeah. separation between people and islands unto themselves. Well, because what I'm exploring in the book is the idea of having richer, deeper moments. The word separation that you just mentioned is the one thing that totally keeps us from those. And a lot of what I write about, and a lot of what you're talking about, is the moment we find ways of removing separation, which can be physical separation, mental separation, mind chatter separation, emotional separation. We open the door to richer connections with people and the world that we're in, and the rest almost takes care of itself. But in separation, rich moments just don't happen. Yep. A lot of 
people, particularly in our culture, we have these very thick castle walls built up around us to protect us from the things that we're afraid of. But what we often don't realize is that they protect us from the richness and the juiciness of life. I couldn't agree more. Yes. <laughs> and the last of your four keys you call yes. making time stand still. And, and there are different ways of talking about the experience of time. Because I, I, also, I lived in Manhattan for 20 years before I, I moved to South Florida. And I loved my life in Manhattan, but my time in Manhattan never stood still, <laughs> you know? And I loved the pace of Manhattan, but there are many days or weeks where my life seemed like one big blur. And I, I'm really interested in the notion of unblurring. And there, there are two ways of, I think, toying with the experience of time. One, obviously, is to start to meditate. And when we first meditate, meditation isn't always a pretty experience because we become aware of the chatter and all the other things that go on, and we have a hard time stilling the mind. But as we become more experienced meditators, you know, there, we really get to three different levels of letting go of attachment. We let go of, we begin to let go of the attachment to the mind chatter. The second level is we let go of the desire to constantly run up, do things, distract ourselves. And we let go of, we begin to let go of the tension in the body. And when we go through all three levels, you know, we occasionally get to that state of bliss or peace where time no longer exists for a little while. And then it comes back. But it's sweet. It, it's, it's an experience of timelessness that's powerful and that makes everything else seem irrelevant. And then the gift of meditation, certainly, if we do it early in the morning, is that, that that sense of calm we're able to carry to the rest of our encounters during the day, and it changes the quality of our experiences. On the whole other end, I'm very much into creating flow experiences, which are experiences where we're so immersed in an activity, and everybody who's listening has had this experience, where we're so immersed and engaged in something that two hours go by, and we look at a clock, and we go, gosh, I thought I was just doing this for 10 minutes. You know, and that complete immersion and the flow of experience where we surrender to an activity and lose track of time is very powerful. So I invite all of us to just explore more activities that get us to flow. Because in flow, time also doesn't matter, and we get to a, a deeper way of experiencing the moment that we're in. At one point in the book, you talk about these two different perspectives on that, two ways of approaching it, mm -hmm. the Buddhist approach of moving towards stillness and the artist's approach to yes. creating with a blank canvas, recognizing the blankness of the canvas upon which we can create, and that we can combine the best of both worlds. Exactly. And my thinking about flow and the flow experience is very much influenced by the work of, it's, it's along the Halyi, Chichet Mihalyi, he's sort of the, the best-known authority in the Western world and the psychologist on the flow experience, because flow is about getting to that full engagement in something. And the two things that really stood out for me in that work, because I think it's so true, if an activity is too easy for us, we tend to not get to flow, we tend to get bored, and if it's too hard, we tend to get frustrated. So he advocates the best kind of activities are activities where you draw on skills that you are good at, but you're working on the edge of getting better and being challenged. 
And that challenge gets you to the full engagement, which really makes sense. And since, since I live in Florida, you know, and, and I'm close to a beautiful beach and folks like to come here for the beach, and I'm a beach person, and I like to occasionally hang out at the beach, but when we hang out at the beach, we tend to lie down and do nothing, and that may feel good for a while, but it doesn't tend to get us to the flow experience. In the early 90s, I lived in Trinidad and Tobago for a year, and I became a windsurfer. And in a, wind, in a windsurfer, when I'm out windsurfing, which is a physical engagement with the ocean and nature, and there's always a higher level of skill to get to, those are powerful flow experiences for me. So lying on the beach and do nothing, I may enjoy it for a while, but it doesn't get me to flow. Windsurfing gets me there every time. Mm. You also talk about body surfing, which is something I did a lot of. I love the ocean as well, growing up in New York City. Yes. I spent lots of time at the beach and just totally loving the power of the waves. Mm-hmm. And if we relate it to what we just talked about, body surfing is disarmingly simple, but there is a level of skill to it, right? You need to catch the wave at the right time, you know? So you learn that the more you body surf, you get better at the art of body surfing. But at the same time, you know, we're surrendering to a larger force we're surrendering to the unknown because we don't know where the wave is going to take us. So the combination of skill and surrender to the unknown is just an amazing way to catch energy and create surprising new moments. I loved what you wrote about your conversations with Blair Glazier. Yes. There was one thing where he describes the experience of Shaktipat giving her a dual awareness of herself, one of an unchanging nature and the other of her day-to-day distracted experience of life. Yeah, Shaktipat, for a listener who doesn't know what that is, that's, there are some spiritual communities which, through the help of an enlightened master, take you through an initiation where you begin to experience this really, really big energy that I talked about earlier. And what Blair Sabulfi says, she says, that energy is true, that experience is true, I know it's real, but then there are moments every day life when I have my doubts, my fears, my anxieties, and in that moment, that's also true. And I have learned to acknowledge that in my life, both things are a reality. Sometimes I am in the everyday stuff reality, and sometimes I'm in the big energy reality. And I'm paraphrasing now because I believe this, by knowing that that other energy, that other experience is real, it tends to minimize the power I give to the everyday troubles and challenges, and it tends to take their edge off from me. Mm. And this ability to embrace that kind of paradox is, mm-hmm. yes. is very powerful in our ability to be conscious and be aware of, because these dynamics are very powerful, and if we can embrace a broader perspective of it, a broader experience, mm-hmm. uh, it's very empowering. Increases possibility in, exponentially. So... This has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, it's been my pleasure entirely. No, it's been my pleasure entirely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a mutual pleasure then. There yes, we go. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I would love to continue. I don't know if you have more time or not. I have a little more time, for sure. Okay. You must have seen the movie Her. I, you know, I... I think I saw like 20 minutes of it on a, on a plane and I didn't watch the whole movie. I, I'm very oh. aware of what the movie is, but okay. I, 
I cannot talk intelligently about it or claim that I saw all of it. Okay, well, I, I probably shouldn't go there. there. There's there's a scene near the end which is incredibly profound, one of the most profound things I've ever seen in a Hollywood movie, perhaps the most profound thing. Is, oh. In the movie, the main character has this artificial, intelligent operating system, and his operating system, she's telling him how... She loves the story that they're living together. But now she's experiencing the space between the words of the story. And that's where she's spending most of her time. And that's where she's going. So she's leaving. She's in the process of leaving and she's saying goodbye to him. And she's explaining that she's now moving into that space, the infinite space between the words of the story. And to me, that was so incredibly profound. And I'm very sad that I just butchered the telling of that. But No, I, I think I got the gist of it. And I've twice been in couples counseling. <laughs> and one thing we learn in couples counseling is that, yes, I was in the same reality with that person. And we think we're in the same story, but we're not. You know, so the power of stories is that even if we have the same meal together, the stories in our minds about what that meal is are rarely the same. Mm. And and what I got what I got from the movie story you told is the more space we create to get out of the story, the more we get into I guess a universal consciousness, if I can use that word, that is that tends to be larger than any experience of the meal I'm having with you. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the one of the I think one of the the fears that, that folks have when they are with somebody, let's say, who's very spiritually evolved, the fear is the relationship this person has with the universal consciousness probably means a lot more to them than the relationship they have with me. And then the question is, it, it goes back to what Blair Glazer was saying. Is this person able to reconcile the paradoxes between big universal consciousness and the messiness and joys of an everyday relationship? Because if we're in a physical reality, we need to be able to reconcile both and celebrate the paradox. And we don't need to see them as being mutually exclusive or getting in each exactly. other's way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I highly, highly recommend that movie. I'm speaking with Akim Novak, author of The Moment, A Practical Guide to Creating a Mindful Life in a Distracted World. And this is... The Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. I really, really enjoyed the book. It's a very easy-to-read book. It's pretty short and to the point with a lot of great stories, which you shared some of, which I'm very happy. I love when people tell stories <laughs> to elucidate yes. the meaning of what they're wanting to share. Do you have any parting story to share with us? Um, a person who I really admire is one of the best-known Western meditation teachers, John Kabat-Zinn. And there's a quote of his that I reference in the book. Um, it's right here. It says, See if you can detect the bloom of the present moment and every moment, the ordinary ones, the in-between ones, even the hard ones. And I love the word bloom because the bloom is a positive word, even in the sense of moments that seem rough. But it behooves us to notice what the bloom is. And, you know, I have, I have an aging mom. My mom has just turned 91, and she lives in Germany. I, I go four times a year to see her. 
when we say goodbye at the train station, it's a bittersweet moment because I say goodbye to somebody who, you know, may not be around that much, but the intensity with which she, she waves her hand to wave goodbye to me and me noticing that wave which represents her love for me, that's the bloom of that moment. And it's a quick moment. It's gone in seconds. But I invite all of us to catch the bloom in the little moments because that's the sweetness of life. Mm, beautifully said. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been wonderful having you on. My pleasure, entirely. Mm. And the future never comes. What? And the future never comes. What comes is always here now. The book was The Moment, A Practical Guide to Creating a Mindful Life in a Distracted World by Akim Novak. And because of your habit of worrying about the future, you will waste that moment also for worry. And because of your habit of worrying about the future, you will waste that moment also for worry. hear from Barbara Fredrickson, who we talked about briefly during the interview. She's the author of Love 2.0. She's the director of the Positive Emotions and Psychophysiology Laboratory at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. 
the jump for joy positive emotions can seem kind of trivial, out of place, maybe irrelevant. And what I want to argue is that nothing could be further from the case. There are a whole range of positive emotions, including, you know, that feeling in our bones grateful for our current circumstances, completely in tune with our environment, at one, at peace, feeling serene and tranquil and savoring that. Sharing laughter with a close loved one or friend and the lightness of that moment. Being inspired by great leaders. These are all important positive emotions that are really quite relevant, especially when we're facing difficult times. Feeling the love and closeness of people we care for. Now, all of these different positive emotions and more share in common two core truths. There are two core truths about these positive emotions. One is that they open us. They literally change the boundaries of our minds and our hearts and change our outlook on our environments. Now, well, let me get poetic here for just a moment. Imagine that you're this water lily. It's early dawn and your petals are closed in around your face. If you can see out at all from that vantage point, it's just a little spot of sunlight, okay? But as the sun rises in the sky, things begin to change and your delicate blinders around your face begin to open and your world quite literally expands. You can see more. Your world is larger. Now, Sunlight is what changes the openness of flowers like this. The openness of our minds and hearts obey the warmth of positivity, the warmth of positive emotions. Changes how open our visual perspective is at a really basic level and our ability to see our common humanity with others. And we know this because we've done randomized control studies where we induce positive emotions by the flip of a coin. Some people are either given a dose of positive experiences, cute puppies, goofy penguins, beautiful sunsets, or neutral pictures, chairs, light switches, things like that. Other studies use a very simple paradigm that was developed by Alice Eisen decades ago where you give people a gift of candy all wrapped up in cellophane, so you know it's not a sugar high that's creating the, the... But it's a gift, a token. They're either given the gift before the experiment starts or after it's over. In other studies, they have people listen to pleasant music. Now, in these kinds of studies, we know that it changes the way people view, kind of step back and take in the big picture. Here's a study from my own lab where we asked people, gave people a series of tests like this where we showed a comparison figure, a target figure on top, and then asked which of these two comparison figures most resembles this. Now, there's no right or wrong answer. They each resemble it a little bit, but this one resembles it in its global configuration, this one more in its local detail elements. And what we know is that if you inject positive emotions, people are more likely to step back and see the big picture and see the similarities along those lines. Other work on this opening or broadening effect has used eye tracking where they lock in a camera on the iris and see what people are looking at. And if you give people that little gift of candy before they do a study like this, they're more likely to look around all the different aspects of a complicated array. If you don't give people a gift of candy, they pretty much just look at the center baby and they don't look at the babies on the side. So we know that positive emotions widen the scope of what people are scanning for in the environment. Rumi wrote about this in the 13th century. 
and captured this aspect of what positive emotions can do. He wrote, there is a way of breathing that's a shame and a suffocation that really narrows us down. There's another way of expiring, a love breath, he called it, that lets us open infinitely. Okay, so we have dozens of studies now that show us that this isn't just poetic language. Now, our studies don't underscore the infinitely part. That part may take a few more years to get us to that level. But we do know that positive emotions open our awareness. They increase the expanse of our peripheral vision. We see more. And there are a lot of places where this matters. Because we see more, we see more possibilities. People come up with more ideas about what they might do next when they're experiencing a positive emotion relative to when they're experiencing neutral states or negative emotions. People are more creative. Some of the earliest work in this area showed how tests of creativity that used to be used for graduate admissions, that if you give people a bag of candy before they complete those tests, they score higher on them. Okay, they're no longer used for graduate admissions, but people are more creative, and this widening of awareness has been directly linked to this greater creativity. People are more likely to be resilient. I have another whole line of research on resilience where we've shown that people are able to bounce back quicker from adversity when they're experiencing positive emotions. Some other research has shown that kids do better on a math test or in a learning environment context if they're just asked to sit and think of a positive memory before they take the test. So there's better academic performance. Uh, really neat work on physicians making better medical decisions, better at integrating the complex information of an unsolved case when they're given a bag of candy, <laughs> a really small uh, positive emotion induction. So maybe you should go to your doctor's office with that bag of candy. One of the studies that one of my former students, Kareem Johnson, and I did together looked at how positive emotions allow us to look past racial and cultural differences and see the unique individual and recognize individuals across racial lines to see past difference and to see towards oneness. There are other experiments that show if you induce positive emotions, people are more trusting, people come to better win-win solutions and negotiations, all kinds of effects. And I want to just emphasize that this isn't the same story that we've known for decades, that positive emotions help us see the world through rose-colored glasses or see the glasses half full rather than half empty. I'm not saying that these views are wrong, but it's not the whole story. In addition, we're also seeing the big picture. At a very fundamental level, we're able to see larger systems, see larger forms of interconnection, when we're experiencing positive emotions, and that can make a huge difference when we're trying to address some of these really entangled societal problems that we face. The second core truth about positive emotions is that they transform us for the better. They bring out the best in us. Now, one interesting fact about all living things and for all of you sitting here today, while you're sitting here today, new cells are being born within you. Scientists that have estimated that on average across all different body systems, you could say that people replace 1% of their cells each day. 
That's another 1% tomorrow, about 30% by next month, and next season, 100%. That's one way of looking at it. Now, certainly, that differs across, you know, taste buds change faster than bones. But still, on average, we're turning over like that a lot. And, you know, maybe it's no coincidence that it takes three months or so to learn a new habit or to make a lifestyle change. Maybe we need to be teaching our new cells. We can't teach an old cell new tricks, perhaps. But one of the things I think is even more exciting is that the latest science suggests that the pace of cell renewal and the form of cell renewal doesn't just follow some predetermined DNA script, that our emotions affect that level of cellular change. So that's an idea that's completely consistent with the broader lesson within my work is that positive emotions in broadening our awareness or opening up our awareness over time change who we are in the future. Now, what this suggests is that if we increase our daily diet of positive emotions, we change who we are. We change our ways of being in the world in important ways. Now, one of the things that I've come to realize is that changing people's trait or characterological positive emotions can be done, but it's not easy. Okay, it's, it's akin to making a lifestyle change. I think the best metaphor for this is moving a river. It's more possible than moving a mountain, but it's not something that you can do just on a whim and just you know, flip a switch and it's changed. It's, it's something that you do with continual reinforcement and effort. And with that in mind, Sonia Lubomirsky's work suggests that it takes as much willpower, lifestyle change, effort, and control as does lowering your cholesterol or losing weight. But with that in mind, I was very much inspired by some of the newest research on meditation to look at how people might use meditation to elevate trait or characterological positive emotion. And in particular, I've become interested in a form of meditation called loving-kindness meditation, sometimes called metta. And what it does is it asks people to cultivate that warm, tender feeling that you already have towards a loved one or even a pet. And really learn to self-generate that emotion and direct it towards yourself direct it towards people you normally wouldn't feel that to or people you have difficulties with and eventually to direct it to all people and sentient beings on earth now what I've learned from my research on loving-kindness meditation is that positive emotions can change this is what I call the move the river slide that positive emotions as people learn this technique over the course these are novice meditators over the course of eight weeks their positive emotions subtly shift upwards it's not a whopping increase but it's statistically significant and it yields really important changes in these people's lives months later what we learned is that as people's positive emotions increase, their day-in, day-out positive emotions that you could describe as their trait positive emotions, as they increase, it builds resources. One of the resources that is built is people's mindfulness, their ability to stay in the present moment and attend to subtle differences. Their close and trusting, warm relationships with others are improved over the course of three months. These are things that we measured before they took the meditation workshop and then a couple weeks after it ended. 
and we see improvements there. We see improvements in people's resilience, their ability to bounce back from difficulties and manage their environmental challenges. We also see reductions in people's uh, headaches, aches, pains, stomach pains, so self-reported health symptoms. And in our newest study, we've actually found changes in heart rate variability that suggest that we've increased vagal tone. So what I want to argue with this work is that positive emotions transform us for the better. It's like that butterfly coming out of its cocoon. If we increase our daily diet of positive emotions, we come out three months later being better, stronger, more resilient, more socially connected versions of ourselves. And where I'm going in my future work is to look at how that is happening, not just at a level that we recognize in our behaviors that we can self-report on questionnaires, but also how it's changing us at a cellular level, how these increases in positive emotions cascade forward and literally change the way our genes are transcribed and shape who we are at a really fundamental basic level. One thing that is true of all of us, just like all living things, we can all either languish, barely holding on to life, or flourish becoming ripe with beauty and possibility and remarkably resilient to hard times. And one of the things that we found is that the degree to which people experience positive emotions in their lives predicts whether people will be languishing or flourishing. And one way to think of this is that we don't have to get up in the morning and think, I want to languish today or I want to flourish today. We need to be thinking about the micro moments and follow the light of the positive emotions. Let positive emotions and positivity light our way to the path of flourishing. That was Barbara Fredrickson, author of Love 2.0.
you for listening. Until next Friday, seize the moment.